Hi, welcome to church today. The message you're about to listen to came from a recent gathering at our church. Be encouraged as you enjoy this message. And in studying this over the years and having been taught by my teachers, Wanna Heavy, I always remember one thing that really shook me about that scene where, you know, when they, when Pilate's asking, you know, this time of the year, you know, Passover, what's part of the custom to always release somebody, one prisoner. And they said, who would you like me to release? Because he was really trusting, Pilate was trusting that they would say Christ, Jesus, you know. But of course, they said Barabbas. And as you know in Scripture, Barabbas was a murderer. But as far as the prophetic strength of words, remember they said, we want Barabbas to be released, a murderer. And then they kept, when they kept crying that, Scripture says that they wound up saying this, let his blood, let his blood be upon us and our children. And they didn't realize, they prophesied, let we want the release of a murderer into our midst. And 70 years later, 70 AD, Rome came and obliterated Jerusalem. But literally, if you study the history, they crucified people, six abreast, outside the gates of Jerusalem, as far as the main road that went out of Jerusalem. They crucified people, you can read this in history, six abreast for five miles, to the point they said that you could hear the screams of the people from 20 miles away. It was that despicable. All because they said, let their blood be upon us and our children. And most of the people that were crucified were their children. And they received exactly what they prophesied, let the blood of this murder, let this murder be released into us. And he was released into their midst. An incredible thing, to say the least. God forgive them. Amen? But this stuff is real. Now, there's all manner of stuff I could share today, but uh, to say the least, there's a ton of stuff, but I want to just read the basic scriptures first. I want to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 from verse 1. I want to read what Paul says about this, and I'm going to share a couple of little things that I had in my notes from many years ago when I sat under Dr. David Jeremiah a long, long time ago when he spoke about seven different signs, and I'm, if I have time, I'm just going to read through those. But let's start at verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 15. Because Paul's talking to the church at Corinth, and well, you just look at the, what the first verse says, and you can see. He said, And now let me remind you, since it seems to have escaped you, brethren, of the gospel, the glad tidings of salvation which I proclaimed to you, which you welcomed and accepted, and upon which your faith rests, and by which you are saved, if you hold fast and keep firmly what I preached to you, unless you believed at first without effect and offer nothing. For I passed on to you, first of all, what I also had received, that Christ the Messiah, the Anointed One, died for our sins in accordance with what the Scriptures foretold in Isaiah 53. That he was buried, that he arose on the third day, as the Scriptures foretold. And also that he appeared to Cephas, to Peter, then to the twelve. And of course, verse 6 is always amazing to me. Then later he showed himself alive to more than 500 brethren at one time the majority of whom are still alive, but some have fallen asleep and death. I mean, I, that continues to astound me, that he showed himself alive to over 500 people. Now, think about that in this city. There are over 500 people. I'm reading a book right now called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by Dr. Richard Boffman. He's considered to be the foremost church now, uh, a foremost theological scholar on the earth today. 
about this, and it's an incredibly heavy book. It's too heavy for me to read. There's too much theology in it. <laughs> but nevertheless, he's talking about the eyewitnesses and the absolute verification they have from, from historical documents and what have you as far as the eyewitnesses and how they could take their words and accredit them as true. It goes through all the stuff from the dates from when it was written. I, I didn't Did you know that the, the epistles, all of the Pauline epistles were written before the four Gospels? Did you know that? The four Gospels were actually written afterward. But nevertheless, there's all this science that proves this, that, and the other about it. But anyhow, and even when Jesus was crucified, and of course, remember, when he was crucified, the veil was rent from the top to the bottom. I mean, angels had to tear that thing apart. Tombs were opened, and it said, many who were dead rose from the dead right then, right then, before he was resurrected on his crucifixion at that moment when he died, can, I, I, can you understand what it must have been like to have been in that situation, to have been in that area? People are rising from the dead right now, and they're walking around. These people are seeing their uncles and their aunts. And I mean, you know, it was, an, it was one of the most astounding situations. Well, it is. It, it has to have been the most astounding situation that ever took place on planet Earth. All, you know, because of us. But it was an astounding situation. Anyhow, he goes on in verse 7. He said, Afterward he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, the special messengers. And last of all, he said, He appeared unto me also as one prematurely, uh, and as to one prematurely and born dead, no better than an unperfected fetus among living men. Now jump down to verse 19 in the same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, 19. And he says, If we who are abiding in Christ have hope only in this life, and that is all, then we are of all people most miserable and to be pitied. But the fact is, hallelujah, that Christ the Messiah has been raised from the dead, and he became the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep in death. For since it was through a man that death came into the world, it is also through a man that the resurrection of the dead has come. For just as because of the union of nature in Adam all people die, so also, <clears throat> by virtue of your nature, union of nature, shall all in Christ be made alive, each in his own rank and turn. Christ is the firstfruits, and then those who are Christ's own will be resurrected at his coming. Hallelujah. And like it says in verse 26, the last enemy to be uh, subdued is death. Anyhow, there's so many things to be spoken of about this. But let me just read some of these notes real quick, and then I want to share a couple of little things with you, and then we're just going to release and let you people... Go eat your Easter McDonald's dinner or whatever it is. Okay, that's what, that's right, Antonio? That's what she said she wants above all things, something like that. Hallelujah. And, or in Cynthia's case, she just wants to make sure she doesn't miss Arsenal. Um, again, I'm just going to read some of this. The resurrection is the most important doctrine of the Bible because if Jesus didn't do what he said he would do, which was to come back from the grave... If he didn't do that, we can't believe anything else that he says. Okay? First Thessalonians 4, 14 through 17 says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus or die in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together 
with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. I don't know about you, but I'm going to be there. Hallelujah. Hello. Okay. Now, there's seven signs. This is something, like I said, I learned under David Jeremiah way back when. He talked about the fact that there's like seven different signs in Scripture that prove, uh, that really speak loudly to the whole issue of resurrection. Number one, he said, were the soldiers. Upon your arrival at the tomb, the first thing you would have noticed was that there were no soldiers. This is peculiar because soldiers had been stationed to guard the tomb for at least the first three days following his crucifixion. Why? Jesus had claimed that he would come back from the dead, and the Jewish authorities wanted to make sure that if his body went missing, no one could say he'd risen from the dead. A Roman guard, what you read when you look at this, what he did, a Roman guard consisted of 16 soldiers. There were four soldiers that always stood right in front of what they were going to guard. The other 12 soldiers would like be behind them in a circle, as it were, resting while the four stood guard. Then every four hours they would shift and go to another. So, I mean, there were 16 soldiers there this whole time. And remember, Roman soldiers were frightened to death of mis-disobeying their centurions or their uh, superiors because of the death they would suffer if they would break faith with Rome. I mean, you know, it was, it was a huge deal. So, anyhow, Roman guard consisted of 16 soldiers, as I said. Um, every four hours, a soldier would stand in front, regarded would take their place in the circle. It was a very formidable thought that 16 ro Roman soldiers were guarding the tomb. But when the women arrived that morning, there were no soldiers. Something happened to explain their, something happened to explain their absence. Matthew 28, 11 says, Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all the things that had happened. Well, what had happened? Well, the tomb was empty. Jesus was gone. When they had assembled the, with the elders and consulted together, they gave them, of course, you remember, a large sum of money to the soldiers saying, tell the people that his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll appease him and make you secure. In other words, the soldiers, don't worry, we'll take care of it, we'll talk to Pilate. Although the idea that the disciples stole the body of Jesus explains the missing body, the idea is illogical for at least two reasons. First, it's impossible that the soldiers would have all slept through the disciples moving the stone away from the mouth of the tomb and stealing the body of Jesus. In fact, 12 of them could have been sleeping, but four of them were supposed to be awake. And the real conundrum is this. If the soldiers were all asleep, as they reported, how did they know who stole the body? Okay, anyhow. Then second thing is the seal. As you get closer to the tomb itself, you notice that the t stone is missing. But along with the missing stone is the missing seal. The Bible tells us that they, quote, made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. After the stone was rolled into place, a rope was stretched across the stone. This is what they used to do. A rope was stretched across the stone, affixed with wax to each side of the sepulcher of the tomb. Then the Roman guard would put his signet ring in the wax, signaling that the sepulcher was officially sealed and contained what was purported to be inside. But when the women came to the tomb on that first Sunday, the stone had been rolled away, so the seal had been broken. Then the stone itself. But surely the most startling sign the visitors noticed when they stood outside Jesus' tomb would have been that the stone that had covered the entrance of the tomb was missing. When they would seal a sepulcher, a tomb in the days of Jesus, the body of the deceased was placed inside a hewn-out stone, and then a piece of granite, usually in a round form, was rolled in front of the mouth of the tomb to keep animals from desecrating the corpse and to protect the dignity of the buried person. In front of the tomb, they would create this groove, an incline, and they would roll the stone up the incline and put a shim under it, 
After the burial, they would roll the stone in front of the grave, seal it to officially close the sepulcher. But when the women came to the garden that day, there was no stone in front of the tomb. In fact, the scripture is very explicit about what happened. Matthew 28, 1 and 2, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came, rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. Mark tells us that this stone was extremely large, actually a stone which took 20 men, which 20 men could not move. John's gospel tells us when John ran to the tomb, he had to bend over to look inside. Scholars believe that the tomb in which Jesus was buried had an opening of about four and a half feet to five feet high. In fact, several studies have been conducted to determine how large the stone would have been in order to cover such an opening. And the conservative estimates indicate the stone would have weighed at least one and a half to two tons. That's from every person that's looked into the situation. But when the women got there that day, the stone was not in front of the opening, and it wasn't even in the groove that had been placed there to help move the stone. John says the stone had been taken away from the tomb. The words in the Greek that John uses to describe the displacement of the stone mean to, quote, to pick something up and carry it away. So the stone hadn't been merely rolled back up the incline where it started. It wasn't near the opening of the grave. Rather, the stone was over by itself as if someone had picked it up and moved it over. And, of course, there was an angel sitting on top of it. Obviously, something miraculous was going on that day. Then the sepulcher itself, examining the tomb of Jesus, we discover the fourth sign of the resurrection, the sepulcher itself. When you study Luke's account, you read that not only did the women find the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus himself. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. You know, Julie mentioned the angels. Um, if I can just go off again for a second. I wish more sometimes, you know, all of my reading in the past two years, God has so continued to impress upon me this truth that we must, we must, we must understand that the spirit realm is far more real than the physical realm. I mean, we still, we're so conscious, because this is, again, you've heard me share like this many times. This realm is the only realm we've ever lived in. So to us, this is the reality. This is reality, what we see, what we feel, what we touch. And yet that realm created this realm, remember. So that's where everything is real. Like I always say, we're the cartoon. We're that which was created. That realm is real. And it is true. There are thousands of angels available to each and every one of us. And it is true, even as I was studying, like I said, just last week, I didn't know Julie was going to mention it this morning, but I mean, it's true. I mean, they, the Bible says they wait until they're charged. That literally, and then in Ecclesiastes, there's a scripture that says that angels, if we speak in air before our messengers, that their hands are bound. Because they can only be strictly obedient to the will of God and to the word of God. But we are the ones that charge them, not God. God sent them to do what they but he sent them to us to be our ministering service. But that we are the ones that are to charge them and say, hey, we need you to go right now. Go cause this to be moved from here to here. What, whatsoever it is. You know, not asking stupid stuff. Go bring me 15 oil wells. Don't, no. But they are there to minister according to what the will of the Lord is. So if you know what the will of the Lord is, I mean, it's, it's see, it, this, it feels so awkward when you start to, quote, unquote, believe and act upon some of these things because you feel like you're being an idiot. 
at least that's what I felt in the beginning. But to actually understand that these guys long to move and to bring validation to God's truth. But they're waiting for us with a humble heart to say, I've said my prayer. Now I charge you to go move the paperwork, prompt their hearts, touch them, change circumstances, do whatsoever is needed. Or truly, like they said, with the money I've given, I, you know, I have, I, I, I've been offering the first of my first fruits. I qualify, not saying that boldly, I mean, you know, pompously, but I'm saying when you know that you have. And that's why you can have faith and say, charge, you char I charge, and I go and cause the money to come. Because now I know what to do with it. You know what I mean? It's not about me. Nothing's about me. So anyhow, he says, then there were one, and suddenly two men in clothes gleamed like lightning and stood beside them. In their frightened state, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how I told you while I was still with you in Galilee. While they looked inside the tomb, there was no body. Past the soldiers, past the seal, past the stone, and the security of the sepulcher, Jesus' body was gone. Now the shroud was the next thing. The most powerful evidence of all, when Peter and John looked into the grave that day, the tomb was almost empty, but not quite. No, there wasn't a body, but there was a shroud. The grave clothes were still there. John 20, verses 3 through 8 said, Peter therefore went out and the other disciple, John, and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together. And the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. Now, this is something, like I said, I studied out afresh because of something when I looked at all these notes that made me want to go to. We always think about a shroud like just a linen sheet sitting there. But it's very clear when you study the scriptures, I'm just going to quote what's, I'm, well, I'm just going to share from as far as just reading that. But when Joseph of Arimathea, Arimathea, when he came and begged Pilate to have the body and came, remember he was a rich man, he took Jesus to his own tomb. And it does say when you look at the scriptures and you look what the word meanings are, that he had Jesus' body wrapped. All the spices weren't there because we know the ladies came later, but he had them wrapped with what he had. And the way they were wrapped, particularly if you had what was waiting for a rich man, they were wrapped in cloth and then different kind of gums, it's called gums and some spices that, were, that would be sticky, would be applied on all of that. Then they would wrap it again. Then they would apply more of this gum, sticky stuff and, and aroma and, and per, like spices but basically, it's like a mummy. You have to think like a movie when you think about a mummy. That's what Jesus was really laid up in. He wasn't just, he didn't just have a couple of sheets laying over him. And the astounding thing is that when they came in, he wasn't there, but that stuff was still there, but it was depressed. It was like suddenly this thing caved in on itself. You've got to picture this. This mummification thing was there, but the body was out of it. In other words, he didn't just unwrap himself because a lot of the Jews back in the time said that he resuscitated himself or something like that took place. But no, he came through that sarcophagus. He came through that mummification issue. He came through all that shroud and just simply walked out of the tomb. Hallelujah. Speaking about 
Mel Gibson's The Passion. I was really, I'm glad about the fact I wanted to see if it's true. They are, thank God, they are, they're doing a sequel to it called The Resurrection. So I'm looking forward to seeing another good film about, you know, his, the set they're going to talk about the 40 days after his resurrection. So I hope there's all kinds of, excuse me, I'm still a little kid. I hope there's all kinds of special effects <laughs> about seeing all the stuff that they saw as far as when they saw these other people. Anyhow, theologian and teacher James Montgomery Boyce commented on this fact. The sign of Easter destroys the idea that the body was stolen. The linens would not have been there. The sign, this sign, as far as the shroud, this capsule being there, destroys the idea that Jesus resuscitated himself and walked out of the grave. Leaving the grave clothes in the shape of his body in the tomb, a glance at these grave clothes proves the reality of the resurrection. Following that experience, instead of being cowardly as they were before the crucifixion, John and his fellow disciples became courageous evangelists for the gospel. I mean, they saw this with their eyes. And the fact the Bible says as a result of the resurrection, these men of God turned the world upside down. And if you read the book of Acts, which is the history of the early church and the sermons that were preached by the apostles at that time, you'll notice that the resurrection is the theme of every one of their messages. They were changed dramatically by what they saw that day and when they went into the tomb. Then the scars, he said, let's examine what happened in the days followed. The Bible tells us that after the resurrection, there was an occasion when Jesus' apostles were gathered in the upper room. Jesus appears to them. The Bible said he did not come through the door. He just appeared. Remember, Jesus was in his resurrection body, but one of the disciples, Thomas, was not present. After the meeting, the disciples told Thomas that they'd seen the risen, risen Lord, but unbelieving, Thomas said, of course, I won't believe until I see it. Eight days later, the Lord returned, but this time Thomas was among the disciples, and after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. <laughs> I always think about, I'm glad he would say peace. If he come walking to the wall and stood in front of me, I would need him to speak peace to me. I just would, you know. <laughs> peace to you because I wouldn't be looking very peaceful because of what had just happened. Anyhow. Okay, then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here, look at my hands, reach your hand here, put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And of course, then Thomas answered and said, my Lord and my God. Thomas knew he'd seen the risen Lord because of the, the scars in the body. And then the sightings themselves. Even beyond the scars, there's yet more evidence for the risen Savior. Jesus didn't immediately ascend to heaven. He spent several days here on earth. And during that time, we're told that Jesus was not only seen by the apostles on the two occasions in the upper room, but by men and women, by adults, children, individuals, groups, in the morning and in the evening. In every situation you can imagine, Jesus Christ was seen. Like I said, studying this book, Jesus and the Eyewitness, it's incredible to see the, the gigantic amount of proof from eyewitnesses that is credible to this fact that so many people saw him after his death and resurrection. Anyhow. And... Um, in fact, if you read 1 Corinthians, Paul says that he revealed himself on one occasion to more than 500 people, most of whom were still alive at that time Paul wrote this, uh, that letter. Certainly, they could have refuted his statement had they chosen to do so, but one writer has said that if all the witnesses who saw Jesus in his resurrected body were brought to court and given six minutes to speak, it, was, it would result in more than 50 hours of testimony about Christ being risen. The evidence for Christ's resurrection is overwhelming. 
And we can say with absolute certainty that Jesus Christ is alive. He overcame the grave, and he is living today at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Now, that's all of this, but i just got two other things I want to share. And, of course, this is one I'm, I'm trust you've heard before. But think about the martyrs. Think about all the apostles and how they died, how every single one of them was martyred, right? They were put to death for their faith in Christ. But not only that, within the next 65, 50 years, you know, after Christ's death and resurrection, but all the way up into 150 AD, up to 200 AD. In fact, we're well beyond that, to say the least. But think about all of these people being offered freedom if they would recant their faith and say that we do not believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. The question always arises, would you die for a lie? Why would these men willingly go to death if the resurrection was just some story that they made up? Think on that. No, they saw something. It was real. It was absolutely real. They knew this wasn't some fabricated story. They had seen it, or their father and mother had seen it. And they knew the testimony. There was too many people testifying about seeing Christ raised from the dead. Why would somebody die for a lie? It's, to me, that's powerful. And the final thing I just want to share is I, it was amazing that, you know, in the Old Testament, there are 53 messianic promises, messianic prophecies, of which Jesus has fulfilled them all. But there's eight particular messianic prophecies that are called historical prophecies. And they're called that simply because we have historic proof, like through Josephus, a historian of the Jews, and through others, uh, Papias, uh, Polycarp, Clement of Rome, these guys that were there, they, we have eight historical prophecies, all of which his, his, historically can be proven by many witnesses, many who were secular, not even Christian, who testified to the fact of, his, uh, of these prophecies coming to pass, that Jesus Christ fulfilled these prophecies. Now, just these eight, forget about all the 53, just these eight just these eight, for Jesus to fulfill just these eight historical prophecies. What I read is the guy, I forget his name, but he was Professor Emeritus of Mathematics at Princeton and was also Professor Emeritus of Science at Harvard. The guy was pretty sharp, to say the least. But in his mathematics, he, as a believer, as a Christian, he wanted to look at what the mathematical odds were of just these eight prophecies being fulfilled by Jesus. What are the mathematical odds that one man could fulfill these eight historical prophecies, right? And when they did the math with computers, stuff like that, it came out to one to the 17th power. Now, you can't understand that. That's one with 18 zeros behind it. Six zeros is a million, right? Nine zeros is a billion. Twelve zeros is a trillion, 18, 18 zeros as the one. But the way he explained it that hit me was this. He said, if you think about it, if you take all of Great Britain, England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, he said, picture if you had 50p coins and you took 50p coins and put them on every single inch of 
the land mass and water mass of England, Scotland, Ireland, Wales. You cover the entire Great Britain with 50p coins. He said, and then you come back and you cover them again with 50p coins. He said, you would have to do that until 50p coins were seven feet deep to kind of give you the idea of what one to the 18th, one with 18 zeros is behind it. Now he said, so you gotta think about this. So you've got seven feet deep of 50p coins over all of the British Isles. On just one of those 50p coins, just one, just one, is a black cross that somebody put with felt pen. And he said the odds of you Finding that of lots of you just being whatever, you dropped out of a helicopter and some play, I'm going to choose this place, and boom, and you stick your hand down at seven feet or 50 feet coins, and you just happen to pull out the one coin with this X on it. He said, that's the amount of odds that this one man could fulfill these eight prophecies by himself. I don't know if you're hearing me or not. This happened. This happened. That's why I'm here. And hopefully that's why you're here, right? It is so much more than a story. But the resurrection is something that we have to resurrect in our thinking over and over and over again because it is the basis of our faith. We have all heard it before. Muhammad is in the dirt somewhere, right? I don't care what other God you think. Confucius is in the dirt somewhere. Every Hindu God is gone. There's no, we are the only people on earth who have a God who is raised from the dead. That's what, remember, makes Christianity different from every other faith there is on planet earth. We have a God who's been raised from the dead for us, and we get to share in his resurrection. Not only when he went to the cross did we go to the cross and die, but when he was raised from the dead, guess what? Whether you realize it or not, you will. You've been raised from the dead. That's why you and I are going to live for eternity because resurrections already happened on the inside of us. All we're doing now is playing out the rest of this earthly existence. But I say it again, I say it often, but I'm telling you, it's exciting to me. The very last breath, death really has lost its sting. The grave has lost its victory. There's, he, I love it in Hebrews where it says, he annulled death. I just love that. I'd say that every Sunday and enjoy it for myself. He annulled death. Death, you're gone. Death has no power over us at all. The fear of death, that's why, again, in Hebrews and another place, he said he came that he might deliver those who all their lifetimes had been held in bondage due to the fear of death. He came to deliver us who through the fear of death had forever been held in bondage throughout the entire course of their life. He destroyed death so we no longer have to fear it. I have eternity in me. If you're born again, you have eternity in you. Hallelujah. And so like the old joke says, whether you like it or not, if you don't like me, that's okay. I'm going to ask God to put your mansion right next door to mine. And I'm going to visit you often. No, but Father, I thank you that in this hour, in the midst of such a horrific death that you went through, that you did this so that we could have everlasting joy. 
It doesn't seem fair, but that was the price that evidently had to be paid, and you paid it. Thank you, thank you, thank you, a billion, trillion, quadrillion times. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that now we have this covenant of grace. Thank you that now we can walk in this earth knowing that whatever happens here, it is temporal. It's subject to change. It's only temporary. But every single one of us is going to walk the halls of the palaces of heaven throughout all eternity. Hallelujah. And we will be rejoicing with you forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. So, Father, all I know to say again is just thank you. I'm, I don't have words. Um, it's astounding what you did. So I pray for our people again, Father. I pray again from my heart in the name of the Lord Jesus, the resurrected Lord, that you really will continue to open up the eyes of the hearts of our people, that they might really see the hope they've been called to that they might really understand the exceeding greatness of the power of this resurrection that's in them right now. Lord, show us how to yield more to this resurrection life. It's in us. Help us learn how to not only yield to it, but how to apply it. Help us receive the spiritual comprehension, insight, understanding that when we lay hands on the sick, the reason restoration comes is because of the resurrection life that's flowing in us because of what you've done for us. So I give you praise, Father, this day. I give you praise for our people. I thank you that they are so loved by you. They are so incredibly special to you. Every single one of them, you have a tattoo of their picture upon the palm of your hand. It is written so. So we give you praise today. We give you much thanksgiving. Hallelujah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again, Father, for the great thing you've done. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. We believe you've really enjoyed this message. For further information, visit www.commonwealthchurch.org and feel free to join us on any Sunday 